Greetings, folks. It's Nick Spool England. It's been some time since my first podcast reading from Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy. Um, in the first one, we ended just after the guard, the prison guard, had come to fetch um, Henry, a condemned prisoner on death row, and he had just sung... Uh, a beautiful song called Lord Lift Me Up and Let Me Stand by Faith on Heaven's Tableland. A higher plane that I have found, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. So that was a very moving um, reading there and also the interaction between Brian Stevenson uh, and the and Henry. And speaking about Henry's family and really uh, the humanity of the scenario really is brought home there. So now we continue reading on page 12 in the book Just Mercy, um, the second half of the page. Stevenson writes, I finished my internship committed to helping the death row prisoners I had met that month. Proximity to the condemned and incarcerated made the question of each person's humanity more urgent and meaningful, including my own. I went back to law school with an intense desire to understand the laws and doctrines that sanctioned the death penalty and extreme punishments. I piled up courses on constitutional law, litigation, appellate procedure, federal courts and collateral remedies. I did extra work to broaden my understanding of how constitutional theory shapes criminal procedure. I plunged deeply into the law and the sociology of race, poverty and power. Law school had seemed abstract and disconnected before, but after meeting the desperate and imprisoned, it all became relevant and critically important. Even my studies at the Ken Kennedy School took on a new significance. Developing the skills to quantify and deconstruct the discrimination and inequality I saw became urgent and meaningful. My short time on death row revealed that there was something missing in the way we treat people in our judicial system. That maybe we judge some people unfairly. The more I reflected on the experience, the more I recognized that I'd been struggling my whole life with the question of how and why people are judged unfairly. I grew up in a poor, rural, racially segregated settlement on the eastern shore of the Delmarva Peninsula in Delaware, where the racial history of this country casts a long shadow. The coastal communities that stretched from Virginia and eastern Maryland to lower Delaware were unapologetically southern. Many people in the region insisted on a racialized hierarchy that required symbols, markers, and constant reinforcement 
in part because of the area's proximity to the north. To the north, Confederate flags were proudly displayed throughout the region, boldly and defiantly marking the cultural, social, and politically political landscape. African Americans lived in racially segregated ghettos, isolated by railroad tracks within small towns or in colored sections, quote-unquote, in the country. I grew up in a country settlement where some people lived in tiny shacks. Families without indoor plumbing had to use outhouses. We shared our outdoor play space with chickens and pigs. The black people around me were strong and determined, but marginalized and excluded. The poultry plant bus came each day to pick up adults and take them to the factory where they would daily pluck, hack and process thousands of chickens. My father left the area as a teenager because there was no local high school. He returned with my mother and found work in a food factory. On weekends he did domestic work at beach cottages and rentals. My mother had a civilian job at an Air Force base. It seemed that we were all cloaked in an unwelcome garment of racial difference that constrained, confined, and restricted us. My relatives worked hard all the time, but never seemed to prosper. My grandfather was murdered when I was a teenager, but it didn't seem to matter much to the world outside our family. My grandmother was the daughter of people who were enslaved in Caroline County, Virginia. She was born in the 1880s her parents in the 1840s. Her father talked to her all the time about growing up in slavery and how he learned to read and write but kept it a secret. He hid the things he knew until emancipation. The legacy of slavery very much shaped my grandmother and the way she raised her nine children. It influenced the way she talked to me the way she constantly told me to keep close. When I visited her, she would hug me so tightly I could barely breathe. After a little while, she would ask me, Brian, do you still feel me hugging you? If I said yes, she'd let me be. If I said no, she would assault me again. I said no a lot because it made me happy to be wrapped in her formidable arms. She never tired of pulling me to her. You can't understand most of the important things from a distance, Brian. You have to get close, she told me, all the time. The distance I experienced in my first year of law school made me feel lost. Proximity to the condemned, to people unfairly judged, that was what guided me back to something that felt like home. And uh, the theme of proximity 
physical proximity is something that we'll see recurring in Brian Stevens's life work. This book is about getting closer to mass incarceration and extreme punishment in America. It is about how easily we condemn people in this country and the injustice we create when we allow fear, anger and distance to shape the way we treat the most vulnerable amongst us. It's also about a dramatic period in our recent history, a period that indelibly marked the lives of millions of Americans of all races, ages and sexes and the American psyche as a whole. When I first went to death row in December 1983, America was in the early stages of a radical transformation that would turn us into an unprecedentedly harsh and punitive nation and result in mass imprisonment that has no historical parallel. Today we have the highest rate of incarceration in the world. The prison population has increased from 300,000 people in the early 1970s to 2.3 million people today. There are nearly 6 million people on probation or on parole. One in every 15 people born in the United States in 2001 is expected to go to jail or prison. One in every three black male babies born in this century is expected to be incarcerated. We have shot, hanged, gassed, electrocuted and lethally injected hundreds of people to carry out legally sanctioned executions. Thousands more await their execution on death row. Some states have no minimum age for prosecuting children as adults. We've sent a quarter million kids to adult jails and prisons to serve long prison terms, some under the age of 12. I just want to read that again. We've sent a quarter of a million kids, children, to adult jails and prisons to serve long prison terms, some under the age of 12. Yo. For years we've been the only country in the world that condemns children to life imprisonment without parole. It's crazy. Nearly 300,000 juveniles have been sentenced to die in prison. Hundreds of thousands of non-violent offenders have been forced to spend decades in prison. We've created laws that make writing a bad check or committing a petty theft or minor property crime an offence that can result in life imprisonment. We have declared a costly war on people with substance abuse problems. There are more than a half million people in state or federal prisons for drug offences today, up from just 41,000 in 1980. We have abolished parole in many cases. We have invented slogans like three strikes and you're out to communicate our toughness. We've given up on rehabilitation education and services 
for the imprisoned because providing assistance to the incarcerated is apparently too kind and compassionate. I just want to say something about um, the church I grew up in, WCF. Um, Peter Finnicke, the pastor of that church, and a lady um, ministry worker in the prison, Willa Furee, they've been working in the maximum security section in Westville Medium B with a restorative justice program, which is a victim offender dialogue and, and recon family reconciliation program. And that has been an amazing, amazing program where God has used that to bring healing, forgiveness, uh, contrition, repentance, anger management, all sorts of, of positive things have come out of that. That's here in South Africa, of course. Um, so I just wanted to say that, that, is, that God has been using that in the most amazing way. Of course, the cross is all about restoration. It's all about redemption, and it's all about restorative justice, not re retributive justice. I love the link there with the title of Stevenson's book here being Just Mercy, A Story of Justice and Redemption. So that redemption is linked to the blood of Jesus. So Father, we thank you that you continue to heal our nation here in South Africa. Continue to heal the nation of America. Continue to heal your world, Lord, and make it a better place, Lord. Thank you for your blood, Lord. Father, we continue to repent and turn from our wicked ways, Lord, and we Thank you that you are you are hearing from heaven. You will forgive our sin and are forgiving us and healing our land. So keep us contrite and keep us on our knees. Bring us to our knees if we're not on our knees, Lord. In Jesus' name. Thank you. You said he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he exalts himself will be humbled. Okay, let's go back to Stevenson. We've institutionalized policies that reduce people to their worst acts and permanently label them criminal, murderer, rapist, thief, drug dealer, and sex offender, and felon. Identities they cannot change regardless of the circumstances of their crimes or any improvements they might make in their lives. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. And with your cross, there's always hope. Thank you, Lord. We all sinners saved by your grace, Lord. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Okay, back to Stevenson. The collateral consequences of mass incarceration have been equally profound. We ban poor women and inevitably their children from receiving food stamps and public housing if they have prior drug convictions. We have created a new caste system that forces thousands of people into homelessness, bans them from living with their families and in their communities, and renders them virtually unemployable. Some states permanently strip people with criminal convictions of the right to vote. As a result, in several southern states, disenfranchisement among African-American men has reached levels unseen 
since before the Voting Rights Act of eighteen of nineteen sixty three. Sorry, nineteen sixty five. We also make terrible mistakes. Scores of innocent people have been exonerated after being sentenced to death and nearly executed. Hundreds more have been released after being proved innocent of non-capital crimes through DNA testing. Presumptions of guilt, poverty, racial bias and a host of other social, structural and political dynamics have created a system that is defined by error, a system in which thousands of innocent people now suffer in prison. Finally, we spend lots of money. Spending on jails and prisons by state and federal governments has risen from 6.9 billion in 1980 to nearly 80 billion today. Private prison builders and prison service companies have spent millions of dollars to persuade state and local governments to create new crimes, impose harsher sentences, and keep more people locked up so that they can earn more profits. That is crazy. Private profit has corrupted incentives to improve public safety reduce the costs of mass incarceration and most significantly promote rehabilitation of the incarcerated. Sure, so the system works against people actually improving. State governments have been forced to shift funds from public services, education, health and welfare to pay for incarceration and they now face unprecedented economic crises as a result. The privatization of prison health care, prison commerce, and a range of services has made mass incarceration a money-making windfall for a few and a costly nightmare for the rest of us. After graduating from law school, I went back to the Deep South to represent the poor, the incarcerated, and the condemned. In the last 30 years, I've gotten close to people who have been wrongly convicted and sent to death row. People like Walter McMillan. In this book, you will learn the story of Walter's case, which taught me about our system's disturbing indifference to inaccurate or unreliable verdicts, our comfort with bias and our tolerance of unfair prosecutions and convictions. Walter's experience taught me how our system traumatizes and victimizes people when we exercise our power to convict and condemn irresponsibly. Not just the accused, but also their families, their communities, and even the victims of their crime. But Walter's case also taught me something else, that there is light within this darkness. Walter's story is one of many that I tell in the following chapters. I've represented abused and neglected children who were prosecuted as adults and suffered more abuse and mistreatment after being placed in adult facilities. I've represented women whose numbers in prison have increased 640% in the last 30 years. 
and seen how, how our hysteria about drug addiction and our hostility to the poor have made us quick to criminalize and prosecute poor women when a pregnancy goes wrong. I've represented mentally disabled people whose illness, illnesses have often landed them in prison for decades. I've gotten close to victims of violent crime and their families and witnessed how even many of the custodians of mass imprisonment, prison staff, have been made less healthy, more violent and angry, and less just and merciful. I've also represented people who have committed terrible crimes, but nonetheless struggle to recover and to find redemption. I've discovered deep in the hearts of many condemned and incarcerated people the scattered traces of hope and humanity, seeds of restoration that come to astonishing life when nurtured by very simple interventions. Proximity has taught me some basic and humbling truths, including this vital lesson. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. My work with the poor and the incarcerated has persuaded me that the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. Finally, I've come to believe that the true measure of our commitment to justice, the character of our society, our commitment to the rule of law, fairness and equality cannot be measured by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged and the respected among us. The true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. We are all implicated when we allow other people to be mistreated. As Martin Luther King said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And someone said, violence is a child of injustice. So we won't have peace until we first have justice. An absence of compassion can corrupt the decency of a community, writes Stevenson. A state, a nation. Fear and anger can make us vindicative, vindicative, sorry, vindictive <laughs> and abusive, unjust and unfair. Until we all suffer from the absence of mercy and we condemn ourselves as much as we victimize others. The closer we get to mass incarceration and extreme levels of punishment, the more I believe it's necessary to recognize that we all need mercy, we all need justice, and perhaps we all need some measure of unmerited grace.